Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. All right, BTG gang, we have come out of our summer hibernation to bring you a slew of new episodes for the fall 2022 season. Some of you may know that I spent the past year in France at a grad school called INSEAD, and throughout the year, I had a chance to meet some really amazing people, and one of those individuals is today's guest. Chengyi Lin is a professor of strategy at INSEAD. Having studied biomedical engineering in Beijing and Chicago, Chengyi is well-versed in the intersection of technology and innovation. After finishing his PhD at Northwestern, he went on to work for the management consulting firm Bain & Company and later joined INSEAD to build out their digital strategy department. His research digs into artificial intelligence, experiential learning, and entrepreneurship. Now, maybe you've listened to this part of the intro and you're thinking to yourself, that Chengyi's background doesn't really seem like the right fit for a podcast centered around food and beverage. Uh, But one of the case studies that he wrote and taught to us in business school centered on Sweetgreen, the chain of fast casual restaurants focused on locally sourced plant forward dishes. He used the growth of Sweetgreen to talk about sustainability and digital transformation. He's also just like a really cool guy and super smart, like way smarter than me. Hopefully I don't sound too stupid during the recording. So for today's episode, Chengyi and I chat about harnessing technology to not only gain a competitive advantage, but also to make the world a better place. Uh, Not in like a kumbaya sort of way, but from a sustainability, let's all not boil ourselves alive, you know, sort of vibe. Anyways, I'm really excited for you to hear the episode. I'm really excited to be back in action with new episodes of By the Glass. So let's get started. Here's Chengyi. I believe it's a holiday here in Europe, right? It is a um, quiet day on campus, which is lovely. And congratulations to, uh, to you, almost, almost time, just uh, four weeks away from the graduation. Four weeks away from graduation. I feel like I'm staring down the barrel of a gun. It's terrifying. feels like just yesterday I was walking on campus, still jet-lagged from my flight from the U.S., and here we are in the home stretch, almost here. Any words of wisdom to impart at the start of this episode? Anything that I should do with these last four weeks that I have, other than get a job? <laughs> Make the most out of it. The end of INSEAD or the graduation of INSEAD is actually the beginning of something big. I think that's what we see nowadays with a lot of sort of different industries and transformations. So I don't think it's a word of wisdom, but maybe just a word of hope uh, that it's only the beginning of a new chapter and we're all there to figure out what this new chapter is going to be about. It's exciting. It's going to take a lot of work. Um, but hopefully it, it mounts to something uh, bigger and better. Hopefully it does. Fingers crossed. That would, that would be an ideal scenario for sure. So Chengyi, you were one of my professors at the start of the program. You taught intro to strategy, which sounds like such a vague topic, like intro to strategy. What is strategy? I mean, how, how did you go about framing that for all these people coming into campus? That's a wonderful question. What is strategy? Um, and Porter and many other colleagues has written various articles around it. But as you know, as we evolve in the academic world and also in the publication world, that, that become a more philosophical question that we all ask ourselves. Uh, here, in my view, strategy are a few things. That's how I sort of frame it up. One, it is not about frameworks and concepts. Those are important, but strategy is about a way of thinking. 
And what I mean by the way of thinking is how do you pull yourself up from a day-to-day urgent decision-making at a operational level to a broader level to think about what are we doing, who we are, and, and, and where are we heading into the future? The fun thing about strategy is applies to everywhere, right? We talk about how do you plan on the year at INSEAD? How do you plan on your career forward? Um, and many of the students and executives as well now view work not as just a simple way of getting a financial security or, or, or getting a job, but rather generating impact. So strategy help people think about what is that impact? Why are you in a unique position to deliver that impact? And what does that impact mean, not only for the company, but for the industry and, and for, for society in general? I think that's what makes it exciting for me is to really pull one up to think about what I'm doing on a daily basis how does that come together and make a bigger story to drive things forward? In big picture and small picture all at the same time, granular, 30,000 foot, how do I get the bag and change the world all in one? That's the NFT, right? right? You have to take one, a bunch of small pictures, but when you put them together, it's a big piece of art. And, and how do we make that happen within small or large organizations? It's exciting. And just like a little background on you for listeners at home, you studied engineering previously, got your PhD at Northwestern, then worked for one of the top consulting firms, Bain & Company, uh, before joining INSEAD's team here in France. Yeah, I I have that about right, right? That's absolutely right. I, I went a bit of a zigzag, if you will, in my career. And when you think about strategy in each of those ways, I mean, the strategy framework that you had for yourself, the way in which you thought about strategy when you were standing in front of, I don't know, fucking Petri dishes or doing whatever engineering work, plugging away in front of a computer to then getting your PhD to then working as a consultant to then moving to France. How has your own kind of strategy changed over time? That is a perfect question. I think that speaks to a little bit how difficult it is to do strategy. (laughs) Yeah, it's one thing to teach it. It's another thing to do it, baby. I I know, I know. Uh, But speaking to my own career, I always jokingly tell people there is a common thread and that thread is impact, right? So, uh, and passion. So um, I, when I was in high school, I remember very distinctively, I wrote in my diary, who am I? <laughs> Which is a fun thing to write when you're going through adolescence, trying to figure out yourself. And I'm basically saying, how can I find the intersection between what I love to do, what I'm good at, and what contributes to a broader society or, or so? Um, and I think if I think back on my journey, that is the pursuit of this impact. So when I went into biology, because I believe Fundamentally, I wanted to understand the human body and I wanted to be able to to sort of make meaningful changes around that. Um, So that's why I went into medicine. A lot of what I do with the engineer work is pushing the technology within medicine uh, to to help people's life. Right. And then and then all of a sudden you wake up to the reality that all the paper I, I have published around 2008, 2009 are still 
in paper. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, it will probably take another 10 years for a lot of the things we do around stem cell research to become clinically relevant. That was the focus of your work with stem cell research. That was yeah. about, yes, stem cells. So and now a lot of these are coming back right now. We're talking about mRNA technology, which is something that we study at the time. We're talking about how do you, how do you really uh, modify genetic sequence um, to help people. Like for example, a lot of the stem cell research take a highly differentiated cell, like a skin cell, make it a pluripotent cells, and then you can make that into a heart cell or a kidney cell. And then you can basically do, do organ transplant to help people with their lives. Uh, a lot of these are still in the work, right? And, and we might see some exciting things coming in the next decade or two. But to me, um, from a personal level, as you said, how do I think about me in that big picture? I, I couldn't wait that long. I don't have another 100 years to live. And therefore, I got a bit impatient and, and trying to make that impact more immediate and, and more real. And that's why I went into consulting. Um, but, but that sort of coming back to the three circles is about understanding yourself. I, I do understand partly my impact could be amplified if I work with more people. Right? And, and that's why I went into the academic in the first place is through teaching, through working with other people collaborators, we, we can really build that impact together. Uh, so long story short, what was my strategy is I do in the center of it, understand I wanted to make an impact, but when it comes to strategy, I think uh, it's more of a, a modern thing about agility, right? Is, is when we talk about Amazon, they, they have a strategy, uh, but then they, they actually make that strategy up as they, they pursue the next goalpost. And, and I think that is what happened to me as well. What opportunity presents, I tend to come back and say, what is the new path that could deliver the ultimate goal that I wanted instead of holding on to the path that I was on? Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend everyone to do this because I did make two major career transitions, um, but it does make a, a bit of a, a, a interesting life in, in, in a enriching way. But also, I think, like you said, being agile, knowing when like the path that you're going down isn't fulfilling and being willing to like switch and pivot and do whatever it is that gets you closer, whatever it is you want to do. A lot of the work that you've done here at INSEAD has been related to digital transformation, which I think unless you're in a very specific world, you have no fucking idea what that means. So like digital transformation, I remember when you use that in the class, it was one of the first times I'd heard that phrase because coming from the industry where I was, which is brick and mortar hospitality, digital transformation isn't a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. But now being here at INSEAD, it's just one of those buzzwords or buzz phrases that you hear all the time. So for people that maybe aren't familiar with what digital transformation is, how would you just kind of define it? Let me explain this on two folks. One is a little brief history for a minute or two. And then that before I try to, to give my view on a little bit of a definition, we as human society are not unfamiliar to technology. If you look at it, the first industrial revolution, the second, et cetera, we are a being that rely on the technological advancement to progress as a society. Abacus to the Snapchat filter. No, I mean, <laughs> it's always been with us always being with us from the early telephones, everything, right? Um, so technology is not new. What was new and, and that sort of coin of this new phrase around digital transformation and the fourth industrial revolution 
it has really started around 2010 and 12. So at that time, not necessarily new technology, but is a sort of burst of a collection of technologies um, that has started to challenge how we think about the way we work both as business and society in the past. And that the key phrase is the connectivities. Uh, so at that time, just a few examples, uh, IoT come out, the Internet of Things, uh, fundamentally are basically a bunch of sensors, and, and then you can actually collectively uh, collect the data centrally and then process the data into the insights. And then we have the industry Internet of Things, the IIoT, and then we have machine learning algorithm uh, get a, a new spring, right? You may heard of the AI spring, partly because the availability of this large quantity and also quality, a good quality of data. Uh, so a lot of things that are happening around that time combined with what I, what I am more interested in is the impact of those technology. Basically, if you're in the US, you're aware of the blockbuster uh, has been replaced by, by Netflix and Netflix went through their own evolution from maybe DVD now sounds ancient to, to streaming. So, so that's sort of what, what stirs up the industry to pay attention to the technological advancement. So let me sort of fast forward that a little bit. Uh, 2012, people are saying, what are these technologies? By 2013, 14, because of these impact, people are asking what can they do or what will they do for our industry? Are they gonna kill us or are they gonna help us? By 2015, 16, many realized they need to move at an organizational level. And therefore, the funny thing is I, I was sitting down at board lunch uh, with like a collection of CEOs, et cetera. And the gentleman basically told me, Chen Yi, I'm so excited. We, we spent two years and, and had this beautiful digital roadmap. We're all done. And I leaned over and said, what is it? He said, I have no clue. Just ask my chief marketing officer. So I called up her and she said, we built a chatbot and replaced part of our call center. And I said, oh my God, that's not real digital transformation. It's part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what companies are working on. And 15, 16 is trying to come up with a digital strategy that incorporates some of the changes into the way they do business. But exactly as you said, by 17 and 18, people got fed up because nobody knows what it means. Uh, and all of a sudden, 2019, COVID started to hit by 2020, most of the companies has to do something meaningful about digital transformation. Just another example, one of the large insurance company in, in, in Paris, they spent three years doing a tender to decide whether it's MS Teams or Zoom. Mm. <laughs> Once COVID hit within a month, uh, they decided to work on one of it. So, so that showed how challenging it is and how we actually, companies, individuals are trying to catch up and understand what digital transformation is. Well, it sounds like there's also some people that see digital transformation as a cost cutting measure, whether that's building a chatbot that can eliminate some like human jobs. But then there's also the idea that digital transformation can be something that augments your business, that supplements what you're already doing, creates more value for the end consumer, uh, and allows you to work more efficiently. There we go. That's the definition and a big part of what I'm working with companies is encourage them to think the different types of digital transformation. Um, and a, a big part, as you explained, of 
in the first uh, sentence is also the big fear how much is going to replace what we do and, and displace workers, for example. We don't want Skynet to go active. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I think that's what we call digitalization is you're doing the same thing, but just engage technology in a different way to do it more efficiently. That could relate to cost, that could relate to revenue. For example, um, a lot of the CRM system and uh, the social media allow company to reach a global audience. So there is growth embedded in digitalization as well. But I think most of the company talk the big game around digital transformation, but far and few are actually doing the transformation part. So I have a narrower definition around digital transformation as opposed to digitalization. Uh, my argument is digital transformation is more fundamentally how it changes how you do things and, and what you do. Uh, right. So this comes in in various forms like sharing economy, uh, like a lot of the companies are, are trying to think about um, how do we give a dining experience uh, digitally. And, and now companies are also thinking about how do you NFT a bottle of wine. So a lot of these conversations are, are at the beginning of exploring how do we do business differently. Looking back to what we said at the beginning is, is the beginning of everything of the new chapter we're all embarking on. Do you own any NFTs yourself? <laughs> not yet. I um, No bored apes sitting, sitting at home? <laughs> the, the apes are, or the, the, uh, the collage of the different artwork. Um, it, it's a very interesting topic in, in almost at a, at a higher level conference um, or dialogues. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't go to any of those without talking about NFT now. Well, I'm sure also as a professor now here at NCAD, you have these students coming in that are big into whatever cryptocurrency is of the moment, whether it's Doge or Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin. And I'm sure for you, it's been an interesting journey to see this roller coaster of ups and downs. I don't know what Bitcoin's trading at right now, but I know a week ago there was a bit of a plummet. So I don't yeah, know. That's partly because of the stablecoin challenge round. Um, yeah. How does that link to the real world? I, would, I wouldn't make any predictions because it might be taken in, in a different way. We might look, look back five years later and regret it. But I will repeat what I said five years ago around digital um, giants or, or a lot of the new digital business. Um, we need to, and this is partly core to strategic thinking, is we need to look at fundamentally how companies create value and capture value. Um, and, and I think for digital specifically, a lot of the businesses like Grab, uh, like Uber, et cetera, they're, they're more shifting value than necessarily creating value. And that's what makes it a challenge for them when it comes to value capture. Now I'm throwing big words. What it means is if you look at their profitability in the past years, um, that has been suffering. And then we see um, hedge fund giants like Tiger Global are actually pulling out some of those investment um, and lost billions of dollars. And I think recently it was 17 billion for them. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, partly because of this hype around technology. So, so what I do right now is trying to bring that piece of reality and, and more sort of a setup thinking to look at um, digital um, and really from a, a value creation, value capture point of view. And the whole society is going through not only one transformation, we all know it, right? There's, there's digital, there's also sustainability. 
and we haven't figured that out fully um, understanding what needs to happen for, for that transformation to be meaningful. And, and that's sort of the, the big thesis for all of us. Yeah, it's funny, like what you were saying about creating value. I think for me, my wariness to, to a lot of this that you're talking about, you know, was the fact that I worked in an industry that very clearly created value. We took raw ingredients, we cooked something with these ingredients, packaged it well, put it on a plate, poured it into a wine glass and gave it to the customer. Like it was very easy to see the tangible impact of the, of what we were producing for people. So what you were talking about, like this growth without creation of real value makes, I don't know, it reinforces all of the concerns that I had where I was like, look, I can understand the way a restaurant makes money or doesn't make money, but the way it at least creates value for the end consumer. And when you look at these companies that maybe are on a hyper growth model, but aren't actually generating value or just, you know, shuffling the value from one person to another, that totally resonates. I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of the hospitality industry, right? Is that it, it's a very clear business model, you know? It is. And similar with retail, I think we can basically look at those two industries and, and a little bit of research around what is happening right now. People got excited and, and digital does change things. For example, without digital, it, it won't be possible during COVID confinement time, people get food and really good food. Like here in Fontainebleau, we have the one-star Michelin restaurant can actually deliver food to your house. You can still have a party at home as well, right? Um, so, but we also, with all this excitement, really over-index on, on what that value creation is, and more importantly, neg neglect a little bit who gets that value. And I'm going to sort of lump digital and sustainability together, but one thing I always ask, because I got invited a lot to talk about e-commerce, to talk about delivery, and how do we really integrate online and offline. But a big challenge is we all as consumers wanted things to deliver to our house at no cost. Then the question is, there's tremendous value created, but where is that cost coming from? And a lot of these are, are now currently founded by VC money on this sort of um, uh, new startups, digital startup, but it also partly squeezes the restaurant as well when you have mm -hmm. to rethink about to fulfill those orders. And, and my thinking, and I've been saying this for a while, is in digital, more often than not, we create tremendous value because of that convenience, because of that global reach. And we are entering the next five to 10 years, a renegotiation on a value distribution. Basically, someone has to pay for it. And sustainability is coming very soon, right? Being sustainable is going to be costly uh, to rethink about the value. So Europe had this uh, a new uh, legislation or regulations going to come up uh, around modularity and of the different components. And the components need to have a circular element to it and be sustainable. And that's going to really encourage us to think about operations and costs in a different way. And then you turn around the question is who's willing to pay for it? How do we share the cost? Yeah. if it's collectively for the benefit of human society. And those are very interesting questions, right? Um, on the day-to-day, -day, is a restaurant thinking about how do I balance my bill at the end of the day? But at the societal level, if we're really renegotiating the value distribution, as a lot 
linked to um, the polarization of society of, of income distribution as well. Uh, so those are the things I'm fascinated about. And, and believe it or not, even if you own a small restaurant or, or just one vineyard, you are participating in those bigger dialogues in the way how you engage with the customers and how you think about your suppliers. And, and, and that's the exciting part. So some of the research that you've done at the intersection of uh, digital strategy and digital transformation and sustainability, a lot of that research was centered around a restaurant group called Sweet Green that American listeners will be very familiar with. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you found yourself researching them and talking to their founding team about the ways in which they're incorporating these two things, sustainability and digital transformation? Right. I think that at the beginning of it, the beginning, uh, the root of the story was a, was a personal one. Uh, we were at a one of the management conferences, AOM in Chicago, and that was sort of where I was based for a long time. Both me and my wife came from Chicago and we're actually looking for a restaurant to eat. And, um, and, and it, Alinea was full. They didn't have any spots for you. <laughs> uh, my wife went, went on social media and, and, and caught, caught about this new phenomenon called Sweet Green and said, we got to check it out. And uh, we're also in the loop. And, and as you said, like a, um, a lot of restaurants are either fully booked or, or, or sort of not opening. So, so we, we checked it out and, and we quite like the food, surprise, surprise. Um, and also I got interested in their business model. I'm very similar to you running the podcast. I basically reach out to one of the founders who also was a Bay alum in a way um, and say, hey, can we have a chat and try to understand what you do and maybe we can develop a case around it. And later on, I, I, I really got interested by their business for a few reasons. One is they did have a mission and I was quite interested on how they are going to execute on a vision because their big vision is taking on McDonald's, which is unthinkable in the industry. There are many restaurant chains trying to do so, um, but they're trying to attack it from a different angle and said, if you look at the externality of, of, of McDonald's, not how they make money, but what the broader impact on health and other society we need to rethink about what's the role of a restaurant and let's do that, right? Let's do that from the consumer end, but also let's do it from the supplier end. How do I really help the local growers flourish instead of uh, you have to build a big farm um, and try to increase in scale? I find that philosophy quite interesting and it, it loops back to Chris, your earlier question, <laughs> how do we execute on strategy? The old way is you, you set an ambition and go, but in this case, it's more entrepreneurial, more agile because there isn't a playbook. If you look at McDonald's, there is a playbook. There's a franchise model. There's a supply chain model to go global, go scale, go standard. But for Sweetgreen, they have to make that playbook up as they go. So that's what intrigued me in the first place. Well, it's also, if you compare Sweetgreen to McDonald's, there, there are many differences between them. But one thing, right, is McDonald's potatoes. You fry potatoes, you, you put them in a little carton. You take a burger that's essentially a hockey puck. Uh, they're there's a fair bit of consistency, I would say, in terms of the products that they're getting, digital, right? Yes. Yeah. So with a product like Sweetgreen, which again, a lot of listeners are familiar, but for those that aren't, 
it's a produce-based restaurant, right? A lot of salads, a lot of healthy things that are centered around vegetables, but there's a wild amount of inconsistency uh, over the course of the year, as well as depending on where you are in the US, right? So as a company like that grows and scales, in your research, how did you find that they reconciled that? Because consistency is so important for the end consumer if you're going to a place like that. When I was talking with Nick and Jonathan, you are absolutely right. That's what they're working on. And I think broadly in the restaurant industry, that's part of the struggle, right? It yeah. is how do you get that consistent of over time and across geography? Um, they don't have a silver bullet to solve it. The way they, they approach this is um, every when every restaurant opens, all three founders were hands-on in that location because partly they need to do is work out the menu, almost like it's new based on the regional production and, and the taste. But also importantly is to work out that local supply chain. Right? Sometimes they work with the intermediary, but many a time they would work directly with local growers. And this is one of the challenge comparing to McDonald's because McDonald's has this consistency and global scale. Therefore, a lot of those um, can be managed by, by this playbook. But when it comes to sweet green, growth is a challenge for them because they have to grow very organically, region by region, location by location. Um, and partly also the question where you say U.S. is more familiar, can they grow globally? All right, that's a, that's a challenge many company face. Um, when we think about Uber, for example, they have challenge growing in Southeast Asia, in China, in, in Europe because of a variety of reasons, and Sweet Green faced the similar issue. If you look at Europe, now we're leaving France, we're spoiled a little bit because there are local farmers market and restaurants are sourced locally. So the, the problem Sweet Green trying to solve in the US may not be existing in Europe. Farm to table isn't as much of a selling point in a place where that already exists. Exactly. And therefore, they do face the, these strategic challenge on how quickly can you scale up and how aware can you expand. I think the investor, uh, the investors sort of may art, may not articulate that explicitly, uh, but that's sort of part of the question mark we will have uh, for them along uh, uh, sort of in, in the longer horizon. But the second reason I, I really like that this case is because they are aware of these challenges and therefore they, are keep, they keep pushing the boundaries. For example, around 2017, they claim themselves as a digital platform. And how do we through food, as Chrissy, as you explained, a physical product of being wine or being salad or being any type of, of meals connects the consumers and the producers? And, and what's the role that digital can play in that? Right. And, and that becomes sort of another interesting point is, is how do we bring technology in a very sort of physically intense industry? And it's funny, you talked about supply chain a little bit earlier and the challenges related to that. I think every industry right now, everyone's quick to chalk up whatever delays or increases in costs are to the supply chain, which is kind of like this boogeyman of sorts <laughs> where you're just like, oh, I can't find baby formula, supply chain issues. I can't get access to my Christmas gift. <laughs> my Christmas gift got delayed supply chain issues, you know, and it's interesting that we are becoming increasingly digitalized, but increasingly susceptible to these supply chain challenges. How do we reconcile this? We are overly ambitious around digital. Actually, interestingly, I started 
research and teach digital around 2013 and 14. My slogan was digital should not replace physical. We should increasingly think about a sort of digital world or a hybrid world where you need to take the benefit of the both ends. And I, I talk about this with my Amazon example. If you're a consumer, you don't put on a sticker in your forehead and say, I'm a digital consumer and therefore I'm only buying from Amazon. Consumer are need driven. And therefore, what I think is important to, to think about is this integration of physical and digital. And those who can develop that view, an integrated view from the consumer end, ultimately will win, right, in the longer term, because that's how we consume. Now, coming back to supply chain, it is fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a hidden part of business, all of a sudden becomes so visible because of COVID, because of the geopolitical uh, reasons and because of the, the requirement around sustainability. L let me probably make two points that hopefully will be interesting. Uh, one is broadly, we have a overly simplistic view about business and supply chain being part of it. I've been recently talking with one of my colleagues who has been researching um, uh, supply chain for like over three decades. And I love what he said, he basically said, there are a lot of research and formula to optimize supply chain. But we, over the year, taken for granted what's the objective function or basically what, what's the goal of that optimization. In the past decade, because of globalization and cost pressure and scale uh, requirement, we optimize our supply chain globally towards efficiency, especially cost efficiency. Just in time inventories. And yeah. that is not what is happening when there is a crisis, for example, because during crisis, you wanted to optimize for resilience. And that's the other part what we're trying to figure out is how do we think about supply chain with a different objective or different goal and, and work backwards from it? So that's the first insertion is increasingly we cannot take granted of the goal, uh, going back to strategy. That's what we're trying to say. What are you doing this for? And we got to become very clear with that. And the second piece is a broader conversation around sustainability. Again, over the years, because of the growth and what really is the capitalism, consumerism brought to everyone is convenience, is this happiness of life. But we started to, to overly relying on those. And, and we forgot, for example, um, many of the conversation I have with CEOs or C-suite is about this shareholder view. Those people who invest in your company ultimately determine how you run the company. Now the question is, is that right? Should capital determine everything that we run? Should my shareholder asking for a 10% return? This is the uh, Friedman versus Fink binary, right? Exactly. Are we maximizing for shareholders or for uh, stakeholders? For stakeholders. Right? Yeah. And if you broaden the conversation, just put in sort of very simple terms is saying, wait a second. Yes, you need the money from the bank to run your business, but you have a whole bunch of people who are running the business. That's what we call the human capital. They're not just there to be paid. They actually participate and create value in this whole equation. Are we underestimating that? And, and companies start to see that pressure. 
because in the US and UK, we see this big resignation. In Europe, we don't see that particularly, but we do see uh, increasing fluidity within the workforce, right? How do we, and we do see a, 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 a jump in the salary and the pay and total compensation because we want to retain the talent. But the conversation is broader is, how do we actually think about the human capital and our contribution to the business we run? And related to supply chain is the natural capital, right? We recently see, oh, what if we don't have metal anymore to produce cars? What if we don't have all this rare metal anymore to produce the chips that's needed for digital to flourish? And we- Where am I getting my cobalt? Where's my cobalt exactly, coming from? Exactly, the cobalt. And more even broadly, we are all consuming air and then putting pollutants into the air. Why are we not paying for it? Um, and we're all using water, but in many areas. And I wrote an article about this, where water is poor, you're basically having this tension between people consuming water for everyday life versus company consumer water for production, but we're not paying for that. So there's a bigger dialogue on how do we rework the different source of capitals. And I think that will come increasingly into the supply chain conversation. It's not a supply chain conversation, it's a capital conversation on how do we rethink about who is the center uh, of the different forms of capitals. Uh, again, this might sound philosophical, but it does have an impact on everyday operations. We see inflation, we see the rising cost of material, um, the difficulty of retaining your employees. And once again, everyone is part of that dialogue. Uh, we can come in, uh, like what, what I like about Sweet Green in a way is they, they started to look at this and say, how do we set price? It's not only by the willingness to pay from our customers. We have to attend to the producers, how we grow and how we encourage them to sustainably grow their produce and, and provide that organic food locally. And, and can we attend to the employees? I know uh, people may have different views about that um, on their action, but, but that's a dialogue that needs to be have uh, on how we treat our employees as part of the community. Um, and I'm personally very excited about this dialogue because uh, those have been taken for granted or put aside for quite a long time because of costs and growth pressure. And how that should be front and center in the dialogue. And, and, and this year at Davos, and, and that, that is happening. Is it? I, I haven't followed what's going on at Davos. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of conversation around sustainability for sure. Um, and I think my assertion on that is how do company go beyond just corporate messaging and, and greenwashing to do things meaningfully on sustainability. The good news is even though the large organization have the financial power and the scale to do this very quickly, there is an opportunity to rebalance the large and small business. And, and I think small business, because of how you're wired in terms of your local community in the supply chain and the tension to sustainability, there could be a real advantage when that equation is rebalanced. I love it. Is there anything that we didn't touch upon related to uh, sustainability that you, you'd you want listeners to know? That's a really good question. I think we touch upon a lot of things, but one of the things I do want to encourage people to think is the connection between digital and sustainability. Many companies, sadly, 
uh, would set up a chief digital officer doing digital and the chief sustainability officer doing reporting. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm trying to, to, to do with a lot of organizations is to integrate that with strategy and operations as well. Few examples, um, we're working with a, a big bank um, and we, we also have a sort of similar chat on that. Uh, basically they said one of the, the side effect, the positive side effect of when the whole bank going to cloud is they actually saved about a third of the energy consumption, mm. right? By not using the servers, et cetera, on premise. So they, we're basically trying to say is yes, when people think about sustainability, um, maybe think how technology can help company, right? Really become more environmental friendly. And, and it has an impact on, on, on social side of things as well. Uh, for example, now we have less travel, but we can have more interactions with each other. Um, and, and that has an impact on how do we think about work. Do you really right? think and, that's going to stay? I, I mean, we were talking about that earlier that, you know, a lot of consulting firms are already sending people back out into the fields. Like, I think this is an opportunity when we could have this transformational change because of technology, but I think it's just so easy for people to want to quote unquote, go back to the way it was, you know, we, we will see a swing back. And I certainly see this. I, uh, I was in Austin last Sunday and, and then people were just in the room. I mean, it was just so good just simply sitting in the room with each other and with you feels a lot better than Zoom, right? Um, we, we will see that swing back, but uh, that's a third renegotiation is we're going to renegotiate with ourselves and each other. How do we interact? And technology will play a role, but do I believe it's going to be all Zoom or all in person? No, we're going to find a new equilibrium somewhere in the middle. And many companies are rediscovering that as well. And I think sort of going, going back to a, a little bit about this interaction, digital is going to play a huge role when we think about sustainability. Um, a big piece is how do we measure it, right? The starting point of sustainability is what is our carbon footprint? What is our social footprint right now? And we don't have a good answer because neither accounting or finance is actually logging those impact into your books right now, yeah. right? But digital starting to give that visibility uh, into some of these, these impact. And maybe they will, we can translate some of that into uh, financial terms as well. Uh, and that's what I've been actively working on with the company is how do you bring digital and technology to give visibility into the broader impact environmentally? And, and what are some of the new mechanisms you can start to measure the social impact both internally and externally for your employees and your customers or the, the community you're living in, for example. Um, and that is going to be fascinating because that feeds into the, what we talked previously, the um, the exchange rate, if you will, between the different capitals. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and as I said, it's, it's a really exciting period of time uh, when we start to rethink about how we interact with, with each other as human beings, how business intersect with society, and how we as human beings interact with technology. So um, it's, a, it's a fascinating period to be in. And in four weeks, you're going to step right into 
that that exciting uh, moment as well. As well, so. you have, you have a lot of faith in 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 my post. <laughs> I have a lot of faith plans. in you, man. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I love it. Cool. Well, Changi, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Chris. Always a pleasure, and uh, all the best. And enjoy whatever it is in, in, in front of you. You get the bag and fumble it, I get the bag and flip it and tumble it. Straight off the lot, 300 cash, and the car came with a blunt in it. Little mama a thought, and she got ass.